Good evening, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. You know the video that's out there. Uh, it shows lawyers arguing in uh, court. It is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, <clears throat> a three-judge panel, and they're arguing about the conditions of a detention detainment facility where asylum seekers, uh, the children of asylum seekers, uh, illegal immigrant refugees headed into this country, are being detained, some of them sleeping on concrete floors. Um, The conditions just aren't good. They really are bad conditions. You would not know it from the news circulating that this is over a case stemming from the Obama administration. It, it, what's so sad here is that this has become a partisan issue. We need to acknowledge a few things, and I want to kind of break this down for you just, just educationally because this goes back uh, be, before the Reagan administration. It goes back to Carter. It goes back to Nixon, uh, to Ford, uh, these conditions. Uh, and I, I want to try to explain this to you and see if I can to some degree extract the partisanship from the overview of it. I mean, you you guys already know my biases going into it, but can we have just an educational moment here instead of a partisan yelling match about what's actually going on, uh, why we are at this point, and and Democrats hysterically screaming concentration camps, Republicans demanding that we build a a giant high wall and keep people from coming over, and that's never going to happen. Let me just try to break the issue down for you if I can. Let's begin with the video that's being circulated. Uh, We need to step back from that video and rewind to 1985. In 1985, the U.S. government entered into a consent decree in federal court in California. It's called the Flores decision. Sarah Flores was an immigrant who was in in, in a terrible state in one of these detainment facilities. And again, this is the 1980s we're talking about. And there was a consent decree entered into by the government where they would do certain things. And that has kind of bound the federal government moving forward since then in how they can treat uh, migrants coming into the country illegally and they are detained. The government is prevented from doing certain things. For example, they cannot just round them up and send them back home, um, put them on a plane and send them back. They're not allowed to do that under this consent decree. Uh, They have to be separated, the parents from the children in many cases. They have to be separated to ensure that the children have not been kidnapped. Uh, They have to be housed uh, by the federal government in certain ways. All of these things going into this consent decree. And again, the consent decree was arrived at in the Reagan administration in 1985 for an ongoing series of abuses and bad treatment of migrants coming into this country that stretched even before Reagan, all the way back, if you will, to Richard Nixon's administration, these things had started happening. Now, why then? Why not before that? Well, we used to have a law in this country until the late 1960s that dealt with how migrants were treated when they crossed the Rio Grande. In particular, a lot of farmers relied on uh, illegal immigrant labor to deal with their crops. And it used to be that there was a program administered by the federal government that would allow migrants to come in this country to various checkpoints where they would get permission to come into the country on a temporary basis to manage harvests, and then they would go home. 
They were not entitled to government health care when they were here. They paid minimal taxation to cover their costs while they were here to the federal government. And then they would go home. They were not given citizenship status. And they had no incentive to stay over because they could come and go as they please for migrant harvest. Well, in 1967, unions realized that uh, this was competing with them. Unions could not unionize with foreign workers who were day laborers coming into the country, and they lobbied the federal government to kill the program, which the federal government did. Illegal immigration only became a problem after this point in American history uh, when migrants would come to work the fields and they had to sneak over to do it because there was no government process. Well, migrants would be rounded up. They would be put in detainment facilities to be processed. Some of them would seek asylum to stay here and the system was relatively new and and there were not good controls nor government laws and regulations put in place. And what happened over time is the situation deteriorated out of control. It led to the Flores decision in 1985, and that has been governed now by what the federal government can and cannot do to migrants. It has, the, the Flores decision has failed to keep up with the times and also to keep up with the volume of immigrants, which has escalated over time. Those are the facts behind the scenes. That leads us to the Obama administration. The Obama administration in 2013, as the situation was escalating, began to detain migrant workers in detention facilities to be processed. The case that is being circulated today, the videos and images are from that situation, not from things happening while Donald Trump is president. Progressives have been circulating a video that purported to show kids sleeping basically under aluminum foil, it looked like, under the, these weird, you know, the, the aluminum, it looks like blankets or plastic sheets that kids are being covered up with sleeping on concrete floors. Uh, the video footage and, and the images are actually from October 18th of 2015 when Barack Obama was president. Those are the conditions then. A lot of the people who are raising the issue now were quiet then. They may not have known to be charitable. They may not have known, but many of them did and they kept quiet. They're now using it against Donald Trump. So where are we right now? So the Trump administration has done a couple of things. Um, the Obama administration allowed some people entry into the country. They were assessed at being not a risk and were allowed into this country on the hope that they may report back uh, for court dates. And, and funny thing happens, most of them don't. So because most of them don't, the Trump administration decided they had to keep them all in these facilities. And the problem is that we have a limited number of facilities and we are, even as the New York Times states, uh, seeing an influx of historic proportions of migrants coming into this country. The reason we're seeing a historic influx has nothing to do with a conspiracy. What's happening south of the border is economic destabilization in Central American countries. A number of these countries are being led by people who are not committed to democracy. Many of them are essentially on the payroll of violent gangs. So people are fleeing these countries, coming into the United States, hoping for refuge. Uh, the United States, I think, has made a strategic error by cutting foreign aid to these countries and various outside assistance programs that were helping to alleviate the, the corruption and crime problems. We're now seeing an even further escalation in refugees fleeing those countries coming north. There's no conspiracy here. It's just it's very violent at home, and they view the United States as a safe haven, so they're coming in very large numbers. They're crossing Mexico. The Mexicans in this deal worked out with the president are trying to clamp down on their southern border. But you have to keep in mind here that whether people like to admit it or not, Mexico is essentially becoming a failing state. 
Um, the government is fighting cartels. The government is fighting itself. Uh, law enforcement, the military, they're collapsing in Mexico. It is a destabilized situation. So there's only so much they can do. So in turn, in addition to people coming through Mexico, Mexico's going to worry about Mexicans themselves trying to come across the border. So the numbers keep going up. Now, this is where the politics get into it. The Democrats are of a position right now that we should be detaining no one, that we should have an open border. That's not actually a popular position. In fact, eight out of 10 Democrats themselves oppose this. The problem is just the many of these Democrats don't actually hear the news. They go to partisan sources like MSNBC, and they're not hearing it. The problem as well is that Republicans in Congress are also trying to state conditions. They want to build a very high wall. They want to send more military. Some of these things are so impractical, even President Trump himself has rejected them. So what you have right now are you have a group of people in Congress on both sides uh, who have minimized the need to fund these detainment facilities and improve the conditions in the detainment facilities. In order to do that, they're adding strings on either side. One is build a wall. The other is let's do nothing. That's destabilized the situation further. The president only has limited access to funds to be able to handle the problem. There is no mistake at all. Make, make, make no mistake about it. Do, do not be confused about it. Understand it. There is a huge problem and a humanitarian crisis in these detainment facilities at the southern border. Make no mistake about this either, Democrats. The president actually wants to fix the problem because he understands it becomes a problem for him if he can't fix the problem. Make no mistake about this, Democrats, that the Democratic Party understands this as well, and so they're doing everything they can to not give the president funding so he can't fix the problem. Make no mistake about this, Republicans. You had the government for two full years with the president and the Congress, and you did nothing to fix the problem. This is a bipartisan problem, but more than that, it is a long-term problem that goes back at least 40 years in American history. And the government today is bound by court case uh, precedent from 30 years ago and uh, agreements that the Reagan administration entered into in federal court, and the situation has dramatically changed since then. Here is one easy thing President Trump could do. One easy thing President Trump could do. He could allow in outside nonprofit groups like the Southern Baptists, um, like uh, the Red Cross, like uh, the North American Mission Board, it, it, these groups affiliated with, with various religious charities, the Southern Baptists, the PCA, and others who want to go help. He could allow them to do that with uh, just uh, waving his pen around. And he hasn't done that yet, and he probably needs to. But also make no mistake about this. This is not a creature of President Trump's administration. If anything, it was made worse in the Obama administration, and we're not supposed to talk about that because supposedly that's just partisan whataboutism. But the reality is President Obama's administration did take steps that exacerbated the problem. And everyone wants to take shots at Donald Trump because they don't like Donald Trump. And they're ignoring that this is a long-term ongoing problem. Something needs to happen. Something needs to happen. Nothing right now is happening. 
President Trump could alleviate the situation somewhat, though, if he would allow in these outside charities. Right now, some of these detention facilities are being run by private companies. The private companies are afraid that the left will attack them for the conditions, even though they have limited control over it as well. So they don't want the outside charities coming in and potentially taking pictures. But at this point, something needs to happen. We're not deterring people from coming here because the people who are in the migrant camps, they can't go home and tell people don't come. They're stuck. They can't get out of them. So the word's not trickling out. We at least need to send in some help to help these people. I've been telling you guys for a while now about my Quip Electro Toothbrush, how much I like it. Yes, to answer your question, I actually have used it well before they started sponsoring this podcast or even my radio show. I like the Quip. I like the Quip because I bought one of those $99 fancy electric toothbrushes several years ago, and it was crap. I mean, it really was crap. Uh, the brush head was tiny, uh, but it was designed on such a head that was so big I couldn't get it to the back of my mouth. You had to ch- take a charger with it. It just it, it was a garbage, terrible design. and pay $99 for something like that, and the Quip's only $25, and you can tell it was designed by designers. It is that great. Well, they've now got one for kids. It is the same great two-minute timer. It pulses every 30 seconds, so they can move it around their mouth. They can brush just like a grown-up, but it's kid-sized, kid-friendly, still well-designed by Denison Designers together. I cannot recommend the Quip enough. I have tried the super cheap $3 battery-powered ones at the grocery store. I've tried the $99 super expensive ones. Y'all, the Quip is the best toothbrush I've ever used. I hope it will be for you as well. I love it. Now, it starts at $25 if you go to getquip.com slash Eric right now. You'll even get your first brush head refill pack for free. What's that? Well, every three months, you get a new brush head to keep your brush heads great. Uh, otherwise, they're 5 bucks. but you know what? Every three months, you get it for 5 bucks. The first one, though, you get for free. Go to getquip.com. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Eric. Welcome, Eric Erickson, the phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Let us go to the phones. Dustin in Dunwoody, you're going to be up first. Welcome. Hey, Eric, how are you? Good, how are you? Thank you. Hey, your, your comment about it being, or about the conspiracy theory in regards to uh, all the immigrants coming over, not being that, and it's largely a humanitarian issue over there. No, no, no. It, it, it's south of the border. It's political, but for actually what's happening at the border, that there is a humanitarian issue. Humanitarian issue at the border. I was just, okay, so it may be a slightly different than what you're saying, but it, a a portion of this that really needs to be understood from the aspect of what's happening in those countries, and I know this because my wife works directly with a lot of these folks, these immigrants that come in. My wife's from Puerto Rico. She does a lot of work with them. And uh, the stories that these folks are being told down in these countries about how easy it is to just come over and Mm -hmm. set up home over here, they are totally being lied to. And it's groups that are putting large um, groups of people together in order to ship them over. Uh, They charge enormous sums of money over there to, to, to put them into caravans or what have you. Yeah. Now, now, Dustin, hang on a second, because we do have to we got to bifurcate this a little bit, because, yes, there are the coyotes who they make money off of convincing people how easy it is to come into this country and get work. Um, and that's true. They do. And, and they try to make it sound very, very easy. And then you get here and, and good luck. 
but there's also the separate issue, which are the people who actually are fleeing humanitarian and, and civil disorder in Central American countries who are trying to escape to the United States. And that's somewhat different. Now, some of them are also told that it's easy to get here, uh, but many of them are just trying to flee to escape a destabilized situation. So there are two different groups, but you're right on that one. They're sold on how easy it is to get here, and it's all a lie. Hello there, Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. Have you heard of this story about Ilhan Omar, the uh, Minnesota congresswoman, the the anti-Semite who always taken the side of terrorists in Congress? So it looks like she married her brother. But, 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 but before you, before you're thinking, Yeah, but before you're before you're thinking like like something something like inappropriate relationship wise, no, apparently it was just trying to get around immigration law. <laughs> yes, that's what it appears. So uh, multiple news outlets now picking this up. I was not aware of the story, but some conservative outlets have been pounding the drum on this for a couple of years following her rise in Minnesota. So uh, it, it does very much appear that her. She uh, married her brother, then claimed to file for divorce, saying he disappeared. She didn't know anything about him, where he was, didn't know who his family was, didn't know how to contact him. And yet, um, based on all the descriptions we know, uh, he matches the address of someone who lived at her home growing up and still has a relationship with her sister and built a website for us. The whole thing is very, very bizarre. But if you'll recall, she was found to have filed um, taxes, joint taxes, with someone who was not legally her husband at the time she was married to this guy. And that got reporters to digging, and it looks like there's something there there. Now, I, I, I want to tie together several stories here uh, before we get into the student loan issue. Uh, trust me here. I'm a professional. I can tie these together. And the number one is this story. So if you check out certain conservative media outlets, going back to well before 2018, as she was charting her rise in Minnesota politics, conservatives were writing about this issue that uh, divorce documents appeared to show that the person she was married to was actually her brother. It appeared that uh, this was because of immigration rules, her coming into the country, trying to make it easy for her to get citizenship into the United States. And conservatives were raising this flag. The media now this week is treating it as new, uh, largely because the uh, newspapers in Minneapolis, St. Paul, are writing about how she uh, formed a crisis committee of people to intimidate journalists into writing about the story, to, to intimidate them into avoiding writing about the story. And suddenly this is new to them. Now, the second story is Joe Biden and Joe Biden's history on race and uh, cutting deals with segregationists in the Senate and singing their praises, including the praises of people like Strom Thurmond and others back in the day. The media treats all of this as new. This was all happening before 2008 when he ran for president. This was all happening before he was the sitting vice president of the United States. And suddenly it's new to the media. They're covering this as if they've never heard it before. The third is the story of what's happening in the detention facilities along the southern border. 
these things go back decades. Uh, the, in particular, the video, as I mentioned, that's being circulated by journalists. Um, the video is actually from a court case involving something that happened in 2015 with the Obama administration. All of these things are being treated as brand new to the American media. And the reason is because they're doing the bidding of progressives. They're not doing the bidding of the American people. They're not paying attention to stories that might harm Democrats. And so if you only pay attention to, to the mainstream media, you're only just now hearing about these stories, which is very, very interesting to me. But this goes now into a completely unrelated story, and that is student loans. The Democrats are playing up the idea of forgiving student loans. Now, interestingly enough, Bernie Sanders' plan that he came out today would forgive the student loans of everyone in this country, whether they got their student loans from the public or private vendors. That would include doctors who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. That would include this here radio show host who makes a very good living and pays his student loans off. I just paid one more student loan off. I got 15 years to go, 13 years to go on another one. That's $478 a month. I don't even practice law anymore. And yet... I'm still paying this loan off. So I would benefit from Bernie Sanders' plan, but I'm also opposed to it because I don't think we need loan forgiveness. So there is a problem to a degree with 18-year-olds getting student loans to pay for their college and then getting out of college as a teacher, for example. Let, let's use teacher because that's a, a beneficial career. I'm not talking about someone who gets a master's in puppetry arts. I actually remember that story. I remember talking about it here on the radio. Um, back during the Obamacare days, uh, they New York Times, I think, Washington Post, one of them interviewed a guy who was protesting in favor of Obamacare. He had a master's in puppetry arts, and he couldn't afford his health care and his student loan payments. Uh, duh. Um, duh. Pick. So I'm not talking about those people, but let's talk about just teachers because increasingly people go to school. They want to be teachers. You have to go to college. You have to get the degree. You get a job as a teacher. You couldn't afford to go to school, except you, you did work some, but you also needed student loans. And now you're a first, second, third year teacher, and you're not making enough money to pay off your student loan. Meanwhile, the college has hundreds of millions of dollars in endowments. There's something not right with this picture. And part of this is a real problem conservatives need to acknowledge that the cost of an education is going up way higher than the rate of inflation. And in large part, it's because of student loans. Colleges don't have an obligation to keep costs low because students can get a student loan for cheap. They don't have to ever even consider a payment while they're in college. And then once they're out of college, they've got a massive bill they've got to cover. And the college is like, well, uh, good luck to you. Can you send us some alumni dollars? The system is broken. And I think that we on the right risk alienating a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, mid-20 people by not at least acknowledging there's a problem. Now, we can say that forgiving student loans like Bernie Sanders wants to do is a very bad deal. 
It will have long-term harmful repercussions on the economy. We don't want to do that. But let's at least acknowledge that there actually is a problem. There are people who do go to school who legitimately do need student loans to make it through school to get their degree who are getting legitimate, valuable degrees and yet are still struggling. I do know someone. I, I know a, a very good friend of mine who actually is a doctor, but is a doctor, is a, a uh, practicing uh, general physician internist in a rural part of Georgia who did have some scholarship, but not all of it, who, because he's chosen to work in rural Georgia, serving rural Georgians, farmers and whatnot, he is not making money to be able to cover all of his costs and pay his student loans. Now, because he's in rural Georgia as a doctor, he has access to some grants other people don't, and he's able to, to make do. But it is a problem. And us just saying, oh, well, kids shouldn't be getting student loans, uh, it doesn't help when so many degrees are premised or so many jobs are premised on getting a student or getting a college degree. And to get that degree, you do need a loan. It's a complicated problem. Let's not just simplify it to a bumper sticker here. Let's acknowledge there's a problem. But let's also do something else. Let's acknowledge that the Democrat solution is a bad idea. Forgiving student loans is a bad idea. If a student is contracting with a private lender, you should not, as the federal government, say, you know what, private lender, go out of business. That's not a good idea. I would submit to you, however, that there is a solution. And the solution begins with the colleges and universities. Take Harvard University, for example, which is a billion-dollar endowment, something like that. It's some outrageous number. Maybe it's time for Harvard to start forking over its endowment. Before you tax the rest of us to forgive people student loans, maybe, just maybe, tax the universities, take their endowments, make them deal with the situation. Maybe stop the student loan program moving forward so that will force colleges to reprioritize and perhaps lower rates in the future. And then we'll figure out what to do with those who have student loans. But maybe also let's not be in the job of forgiving student loans for people who get a master's in puppetry arts and are suddenly shocked to realize that they make more money as a barista at Starbucks than they do shoving their hand up the backside of a furry puppet. Phone number here, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. It is Eric Erickson and Atlanta's Evening News. You're listening to WSB. And did you see the video of Pete Butterjudge? Uh, Buttigieg, except Siri keeps changing it to Butterjudge whenever I say it. Uh, Pete Buttigieg and the Black Lives Matter people, they are... So they're arguing with him. Essentially, uh, South Bend, Indiana has had a, a series of incidents with police officers um, treating members of the black community very badly. And uh, Buttigieg takes full responsibility as the poli- as the mayor of the city. And the protesters showed up yelling at him and um, saying that, that if he was going to ask for their vote, then he needed to respect their community. And his response was, well, I'm not asking for your vote. Huh? I mean, I was just, I was kind of surprised there, but that's what he did. Um, it, it was very, very interesting. So, um, he, he's having some problems with the black community, but there is a subtext the media can't bring itself to get into. I, however, will tell you what the subtext is. 
As I have mentioned, the number one block of voters in a Democratic primary are black females. And guess which group of people in this country is least sympathetic to the idea of having a gay president? Black females. Yeah. Um, Hispanics in general, black females in particular, and of course, um, evangelicals, all of whom are a little bit skeptical to a great bit hostile to the idea of having uh, gay elected officials, particularly at the presidential level. And Buttigieg is running into that problem now where where black women uh, tend to be very socially conservative, even though they vote Democrat. And it's becoming a problem for him and the Black Lives Matter situation derived from that skepticism. Welcome, it is Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB and Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. Uh, just a reminder, this month, our nonprofit of the month that we're spotlighting is Help the Persecuted, Georgia-based nonprofit that um, helps Christians being persecuted, particularly those in the Middle East. Uh, those who convert to Christianity are often threatened, some of them killed, so uh, Help the Persecuted. Funds safe houses and other projects, uh, finds uh, places for Christians, safe places for them in the Middle East to help them avoid uh, being killed or harmed otherwise. You can learn more about them and support them by texting the letters WSB to 345-345. Also, um, I, I cannot tell you who our top VIP is who's coming to our conference. I can tell you he's elected by a college uh, and has great influence uh, all over the country. I can't really tell you anything more than that. Um, he'll have a fancy motorcade when he comes. And if you want to come, you can text the word Atlanta to 345-345. What's going to happen, though, and th there's been some confusion here. I need you to understand this. If you text Atlanta to 345-345, you're going to get back a link to an Eventbrite page. If you click the Eventbrite page link, you'll actually see who's been invited, and you may see the name of the person who who may or may not be coming, who's been elected by college. And you can go through the process of securing your reservation, and anyone who comes with you, just say you need two tickets or three tickets or four tickets or however many, put the names down and pay um, 99 bucks. Once we can confirm and make public the person, the ticket price is going to go up to 250 so you're getting a great deal now. Uh, but when you text Atlanta to 345-345, come back, follow that link that comes back to you to actually go to Eventbrite and register. Just by texting Atlanta to 345-345, you are not registering for my conference. So don't show up and say, hey, I texted. No, no, no. You got to follow the link back and actually buy your tickets. Uh, now, we need to move on to the big news of the day. President is president. Uh, no, no, no. The vice. Nope, nope. Brain farts here talking about all the people who are coming to my conference. No, the governor, he will be there. Governor Kemp will be at the resurgent gathering. He is in Korea, South Korea, visiting with businesses that have business interests in Georgia or might want to have business interests in Georgia. Now, I am told that 
Uh, Bill Lee, the governor of Tennessee, is also competing for some of these companies. Now, Bill Lee is interested in coming to the resurgent gathering. I've invited them. They're going to see if they can make work to come down on Saturday and speak. And and we're in competition with Governor Lee for some of these companies. So Governor Kemp's over there right now um, doing his best to get them to come to Georgia. South Korea has a huge business relationship with Georgia. He was on last week. You can get the podcast of the show if you want to listen to it. Uh, But good luck to him attracting businesses coming to the state of Georgia. Now, President Trump has been uh, dealing with the Iran situation and has decided to increase sanctions on Iran. He announced today that he's going to give big, huge, beautiful sanctions to Iran, but we do not know the terms of those sanctions yet. There are some trickling out, uh, more bank holds, more restrictions on the Iranians' ability to sell their oil around the the world, um, more restrictions on Iran otherwise. But one of the things that President Trump tweeted this morning was that he doesn't understand why the American Navy is patrolling shipping lanes out of the Middle East when China and other countries get so much of their oil from the Middle East and we're largely energy independent. Uh, The suggestion being he's going to get the American Navy to withdraw from patrolling shipping lanes. I actually do know something about this. When I was a kid growing up in Dubai, my family would routinely entertain the enlisted sailors from the Fifth Fleet. Uh, Dubai had at the time, I think still does, the largest dry docks uh, in the world and at the time had the only dry docks from Egypt to Singapore. So the U.S. Navy, uh, they may have been based in Bahrain, but they would go to Dubai to get their ships fixed in dry dock. And whenever they came into port, um, we entertained tons of, of sailors, um, the the Vincennes, the LaSalle, the, the Lawrence, the Samuel B. Roberts. In fact, Samuel B. Roberts was hit by a mine in the Persian Gulf, and a lot of the enlisted wound up basically living with my family for three months until they were able to load up the ship and take it home. Um, there are tons of the the RK Turner. In fact, I've got a round of ammo on my desk that I keep. Uh, the RK Turner was the first U S ship to engage the Libyans. When Reagan ordered the bombing of Libya, they fired rounds at a Libyan vessel. The captain of the ship gave me some of the rounds for my birthday that year. And I keep them on my desk. So I'm very familiar with the Navy's role in the middle East and what we do. And it is terrible precedent terrible precedent to give up the patrol of shipping lanes to China and Russia and other countries because they are of global strategic importance. China does not patrol the foreign shipping lanes for oil right now. The reason China does not do that is because the United States does it. Now, you're thinking, I, I know how some of you think, and you're thinking, well, maybe China should. Why, why are we doing China's works for, for them? Because China doesn't have the naval resources. We do. So we patrol the shipping lanes, and we encounter the asymmetric warfare that China doesn't have to encounter. If China were to begin patrolling the shipping lanes that we now patrol, China would have to expand its navy. That's bad for us. China would then have to regularly engage asymmetric warfare that China does not engage now, and they would be able to learn from it. That's bad for us. It is really of strategic long-term importance for the United States to do this. Now, I encountered someone who listens to this program who's who's a Delta pilot uh, who engaged me this morning on this issue and said, we are a net exporter of oil. It's ridiculous for us 
to be securing with our Navy the oil exports from the Middle East to countries like China that are our adversaries. And yes, short term, that, that's, that's a, a reasonable argument, but we're, we need to think long term here because it takes long term for countries to make the pivot to build the Navy and use their resources to begin to patrol this. We will very soon in this country have a democratic presidential administration. Now, I'm not saying the president's going to lose in 2020, but the odds are uh, the party that keeps the White House keeps Keeps it for two terms. So by 2024, we're looking at a potential Democratic administration that will be hostile to domestic energy production, which will cause us to become reliant on Middle Eastern oil production yet again. And do we want to be dependent on the Chinese Navy at that time to secure those oil exports? I don't think we do. Uh, we've got to do long-term strategic thinking here. We worked for decades to build up the Middle East reliance on American naval power. We have stationed a fleet in the Middle East to keep that part of the world secure. I am telling you that we do not want to give this up. Don't think short term about this. I'm afraid that's what the president's doing. He's thinking short term. Long term, it is in our national security interest to maintain these shipping lanes with the American Navy. We know the waters best. The Chinese don't. We have the Navy that China doesn't need. We don't want China to start developing new naval technologies. We don't, and they're not right now. They're developing other technologies that should worry us, but right now we control the seas. We don't want to cede that ground, and I hope the president reconsiders this. It would be a dangerous precedent for us to abandon our shipping lane interests in the Middle East to foreign powers that do not have our best interests at heart. I've been telling you guys for a while now about my Quip Electra toothbrush, how much I like it. Yes, to answer your question, I actually have used it well before they started sponsoring this podcast or even my radio show. I like the Quip. I like the Quip because I bought one of those $99 fancy electric toothbrushes several years ago, and it was crap. I mean, it really was crap. Uh, the brush head was tiny, uh, but it was designed on such a head that was so big I couldn't get it to the back of my mouth. You had to ch take a charger with it. It just it, it was a garbage, terrible design. and to pay $99 for something like that, and the Quip's only $25, and you can tell it was designed by designers. It is that great. Well, they've now got one for the kids. It is the same great two-minute timer. It pulses every 30 seconds, so they can move around their mouth. They can brush just like a grown-up, but it's kid-sized, kid-friendly, still well-designed by Denison designers together. I cannot recommend the Quip enough. I have tried the super cheap $3 battery-powered ones at the grocery store. I've tried the $99 super expensive ones. Y'all, the Quip is the best toothbrush I've ever used. I hope it will be for you as well. I love it. Now, it starts at $25 if you go to getquip.com slash Eric right now. You'll even get your first brush head refill pack for free. What's that? Well, every three months, you get a new brush head to keep your brush heads great. Uh, otherwise, they're 5 bucks. But you know what? Every three months, you can get it for 5 bucks. The first one, though, you get for free. Go to getquip.com. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Eric. Hello there, Eric Erickson here, the phone number 404-872-0750-1800-WSB-TALK. Now, I want to go to the phones. Uh, let's see, I've got time. Rick and Jasper, you're going to be next. Welcome, Rick. Hey, how you doing, Eric? Good, how are you? Good. Um, my, my comment was, uh, I, I, one of the things I love about Trump is that he likes to shift the cost to those that are actually using a service like 
oil, the acquisition of oil or gas, uh, energy, to those that are using it, not us. And since we're an exporter, I think it is appropriate that China, Japan, and all of those pay for escorting their own ships through the Straits of Hormuz and end up uh, relieving that obligation from us. How are we ever going to get our debt paid if we keep financing everybody like we're the ones? Well, listen, Rick, I I understand the sentiment here. I I really do. But but I think we need to uh, approach this from geostrategic standpoint, not just a a bottom line pocketbook issue. Yes, we certainly have debt and deficit issues we got to deal with. uh, But are we prepared to cede uh, the shipping lanes to the Straits of Hormuz to Chinese control? Uh, like we did the Panama Canal. Are, are we prepared to allow the Chinese to be in charge of a super strategic part of the world uh, in the same way Jimmy Carter abandoned the Panama Canal to the Chinese? Uh, because the Chinese now run the Panama Canal. And if, if that's a question where the president says, yes, let's hand our adversary the control of one of the most geopolitical strategic areas of the entire planet, just like Jimmy Carter did, uh, and make Donald Trump now uh, the 21st century Jimmy Carter. I, okay, if that's what you want to do, but but we need to look at it that way. Because what's going on here is the Straits of Hormuz and that area is one of the most strategically important parts of the entire world because the Middle East exports so much oil. And we do right now temporarily, but they have way more long-term than we do. In addition to that, you also have the the situation right now where because the United States military controls the states of the Straits of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf largely, the Chinese, the Russians, and elsewhere have, have avoided it. Well, Iran right now, guess who they're making deals with? They're making deals with Russia and China. So guess who's probably going to get a military presence in the Middle East? And we're going to abandon ours at the time they're building it? Y'all, you, you got to arrange the, the... I hate... I really hate chess. I, I've always hated chess. And it's not that I'm a bad chess player. I'm not great, but I'm, I'm not bad. I just hate the game. But we do need to think several moves ahead here. Uh, we say, okay, you know what, guys? Y'all, y'all pony up your own costs. You know what we're doing by covering these costs? is we're giving them an incentive not to build their own navy out and that helps us long term so you got to do think long term about these things and not just the pocketbook cost and we will see you guys tomorrow <laughs>